You're listening to the World of Higher Education podcast, Season 1, Episode 5. Hi, everyone. I'm Alex Usher, and this is the World of Higher Education podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Jonathan Jansen, a distinguished professor of education at Stellenbosch University just outside Cape Town and the president of the Academy of Science in South Africa. And we're talking about his absolutely harrowing new book, Corrupted, a study of chronic dysfunction in South African universities. You may have heard tales over the past decade or so about various state agencies in South Africa having been hollowed out or captured by organized corruption. Turns out that higher education is not immune from this, at some institutions anyway. Graft is endemic, and the level of violence used to protect and extend this graft is serious. Earlier this year, at Fort Air University, that is Nelson Mandela's alma mater, a bodyguard was killed in an assassination attempt on the life of a vice chancellor trying to clean up the university. This was far from an isolated incident. In poor countries like South Africa, universities, particularly those located in more distant rural areas, are, in Jansen's words, a concentrated and exploited resource. And there are some very nasty criminal conspiracies precisely to make sure that they are exploited. Two things in particular worth paying attention to in this episode. One is simply how complex some of the looting schemes are, involving players both inside and outside the university. It's both impressive and demoralizing. But the second is Jonathan's insistence that the route back to respectability for most of these institutions lies directly through what he calls the academic mission. When you get to the point where a university is merely a pot of money, a machine for sustaining jobs, universities can take some pretty strange turns. But the institutions that have succeeded in South Africa are the ones which have a strong academic purpose or mission, which guides all decision-making, including things like procurement. Values matter. But you should hear Jonathan for yourself. Have a listen. Hello, Jonathan. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. You bet. So there have been books written in many different countries about academic corruption, but usually they're talking about perversions within the academic mission. So cheating on exams, paying professors for grades and, and those kinds of things. But the corruption you're talking about in your book is quite different. It's partly about that academic dysfunction, for sure, but it's also partly the actual looting of public resources. Can you tell us a little bit about the corruption issue in certain South African universities? So, so the book is about institutional corruption. And, and I use that uh, particular terminology in two senses. First of all, one is not talking here about individual acts of corruption, but something enmeshed in the culture and in the operations of the university. Uh, to the extent that if you do not steal, you are regarded as the problem. And, and that's what I mean by institutionalized corruption. But secondly, um, it also means that the corruption in universities as public institutions in South Africa are not unaffected by the general wave of corruption that has hobbled state-owned enterprises like the ESCOM, like the electricity provider, for example. So that's my particular angle of corruption in the book, institutional in those senses. And the kind of corruption you're talking about doesn't affect all universities in South Africa. And in fact, at the start of your book, you give a pretty nifty summary of South African higher education, its history, and you trace the origins of the problems to the different traditions of English, Afrikaans, and, and Bantustan universities. Could you give us a brief overview of that? Sure. So the conditions that make institutional corruption possible lies not only in the present, 
but in the distant past. That is to say, in the ways some universities were able to develop over time strong systems of academic governance uh, and financial integrity, typically in the former white institutions, because they were relatively sheltered from apartheid's uh, interference. On the other hand, the historically black institutions like the University of Orea, that's a term at the moment, were compromised in their very origins. They were set up not to be universities, but as you know, training colleges for uh, that produce black students for for the public service, the public public service, and the like. So from their very start, they were underfunded. They were perceived as inferior, that is, relative to the white universities, and they were constantly undermined politically. So one university gets placed under four or five different administrations, one of which is a corrupt Pantistan uh, uh, system, these ethnic reserves set aside for people apartheid as different. And so in those ways, the, the, the liberal English white universities, for example, continued relatively un hindered, very well-funded, very well-connected, and that uh, those effects remain to this day, as opposed to the Saudi Black universities, particularly the rural institutions, which uh, have never stopped uh, uh, fighting to simply survive financially and otherwise from one decade into the next. So in addition to some of these, you know, um ethnic, linguistic, historical differences. There are some other historical legacies that contribute to the problems you discuss in your book. So, for instance, the struggle against apartheid that created a tradition of, of opposition to educational authorities. Education, if I'm not mistaken, was sort of at the heart of the, the Soweto uprising in the 1970s. But you also suggest that one institutional innovation from the transition era, that is the, the period in the early 1990s, just as the ANC was coming to power, one institutional innovation, the institutional forum, is in some cases at least a contributing factor to current problems. What is the institutional forum? How does that fit into the governance of South African institution? And to what extent are these forums involved in various forms of corruption? Great question. So the political ethos of democratic governance lies very deep and very proud within the consciousness of South Africa's activist communities, including those in, in higher education. So the institutional forum, for example, was 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 a big table that allowed everybody from students to union workers to academics to ordinary staff to to uh, you know outside interests uh, uh, um, uh, the local mayor all of those things so everybody could become part of the governance of the institution this was sort of a reaction if not an overreaction to apartheid centralized control of institutions including universities but that arrangement turned out to be a two-edged sword. On the one hand, that ethos democratizes academic cultures in ways that allow for everyone to participate, as I just indicated. On the other hand, when those agencies like students and unions themselves are corrupted in the run on institutional resources, then this flat model of democracy wreaks havoc on stabilization efforts, and that is exactly what's happening in the present. And how does that forum sit alongside university councils or university senates in terms of responsibilities? Yeah, again, great question. So initially, that is in the early years of the post-apartheid democracy, 
you had the the traditional authorities, the council, the senate, the management, uh, the executive running the university. And instead of collapsing those, you at the same time had these institutional forums which had everybody involved. And you can imagine the chaos that this caused uh, in, in just running a university when you have two centers of power, to coin a South African phrase. And so eventually the policymakers decided to, to tame the institutional forum. That is, to give it the status of an advisory function <laughs> as opposed to making any hardcore decisions themselves. Well, needless to say, that pretty much made the, the IEF, as we call it, a, a, you know, a toothless uh, body. So it still exists, but it has absolutely no decision-making on the big issues. And so most universities, activists ignore the institutional forum and take that fight directly into a council or a senate. And you've talked about how the students and the faculty, or at least the unions, play a role in corrupting the institution. How does that work? Is it simply that they are causing dysfunction to further their own professional or academic careers, or are they actually working on behalf of outside agents to pervert procurement processes? Sure, a little bit of both. So first of all, the students, uh, uh, because in, on many of our campuses, the student bodies are representative of the external political parties in parliament. So for every ANC, there's a student party called SASCO. For every Democratic Alliance, the opposition, there is a DA student body, and so on and so forth, for all the parties, all the major parties. The result is that the students don't go there to represent student interests. They go there to represent their party uh, heads. And you can imagine the chaos that that causes, especially around election time. And, and so on. Now, because some of these parties are quite corrupt, they also see the students as giving them a foot in the door to the processes of procurement, for example, of, on large infrastructural grants or, or IT grants, or which are running to the billions, you know, uh, of rands. And so uh, that very often simply undermines governance at these institutions. Then you have external council members in this flat model of democracy represented on the council, but they come from municipalities that no longer, that they basically stripped of resources. So now they see the university as this concentrated resource, and they come onto the council not to talk about teaching and learning and IT, you know, but to figure out how they can lay their hands on the loot. And so they are either directly or as proxies for people on the outside. And some universities have, have, have sort of managed that well. The dysfunctional universities I studied, about 10 of them in the book, have simply not developed a response to that kind of symbiotic you know, relationship between insiders and outsiders in which both benefit from stripping the institutional resources. Interesting. Okay. So one very striking phrase in the book, uh, it made me sit up when I read it, is that universities are a concentrated and exploitable resource. And this exploitation seems to happen in three ways. You know, I mean, there are internal agents who are simply stealing resources. I think you have some interesting stories about councils and, and a couple of VCs in that respect. Second, there are, you know, what I would call conspiracies between internal and external agents to defraud institutions through procurement practices, which we just talked about. 
And third, there are instances of universities simply being shaken down by external agents. And you describe a case at the University of Fort Hare where the local taxi drivers, you know, demanded that they get a monopoly on transport to and from the institution because the university was a gold mine and they needed their share. I'm curious, like in terms of money being sucked out of the system, which of these three is the biggest problem and, and how much in total do you think is being siphoned away each year? Yeah, and so we're talking billions, not millions of rands, which in a middle-income country like South Africa is a lot of money. And as I said earlier, they include the students work with outside political parties, the municipal leaders on the council work with their primaries uh, in the community. Everybody is in it, but because you'll never be able to steal that magnum of resources on your own, you've got to do it with uh, for example, staff who sit on the IT procurement system will give you ahead of time access to the specs so that you can come in just at about the level of, of the allocation and so on. So there isn't a hierarchy of, of, of influences here. There is a collaboration among influences uh, that makes it so much more difficult to, to pin down, you know, a particular agent or agency uh, in all of this. And so for corruption to work well, you require that kind of collusion by inside and outside parties. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Micro-credentials continue to be the most talked about area of innovation in post-secondary education. Higher Education Strategy Associates, in partnership with the Strategic Council, has released a new report on micro-credentials in the Canadian marketplace, a comprehensive analysis of national and international trends, practices, and policies around micro-credentials, as well as a national survey of employers and employees in Canada. If you're a university decision maker tasked with maximizing innovation and value for micro-credentials, this is a report you can't afford to miss. Purchase the report today and gain access to the launch webinar on March 28th. For more information, please contact us at info at higheredstrategy.com. And we're back. Jonathan, you point out in your book that within higher education, it's not just universities which face problems with corruption, but also the student loan system, NSFAS, in, uh, I, think, I think that's how you pronounce that, uh, initialism. Yeah. Can you tell me about the kinds of problems that that organization has had? How do you commit mass fraud against the student loan agency? Yeah, so what the government does is to say, we can't manage this kind of money, billions and billions of rands a year in student financial aid on our own. We will create the structure called NISFAS that does the disbursements on behalf of the state. But as in anything South Africa, you put that kind of money in one agency, it is going to become a target for vultures. So one of the things, I'm a very traditional academic. You know, when I look at a university, I see research, I see teaching, I see chat GPT, I see learning methods. I see all these beautiful, wonderful things about the university as an intellectual space. But in a poor community, people often look at the university not in those academic terms, but as, oh, uh, this is good. Here's a place in which I can get employed, legally or illegally. Here's a place in which I can steal certificates and get degrees from which I didn't study. There's a place in which I can get access and beyond access to infrastructure grant um, monies for my company that didn't exist just before the grant. So 
it's it, and so on. So this fast becomes, in a way, this uh, a very visible and very well-resourced state functionary that has to be, uh, you know, accessed uh, as well. And so the way that you would take money out of that, I mean, is it that there's not enough safeguards? People can set up fake student loan accounts. I mean, where, where's the money actually leaving the system? So the money leaves the system in a myriad of different ways, one of which is that you have thousands of students applying using fake names, using uh, fake documentation of dead people, using, you know, on the one hand. On the other hand, you have staff within this space, many of whom make these arrangements with vendors on the outside, the vendor that pays the accommodation or the vendor that pays the, the, the food account to sort of come in at a much higher rate than they're supposed to. And then uh, the two parties will, will, will take the difference and split it among themselves. Now, if this is, you know, $100, there's not much in it for anyone. But these are millions and billions of, of brands. And that is what makes this such a lucrative. But there's many different ways of coming into the system with so much money in which, uh, as I said, the vendors, the staff, the students, everybody gets cut. You're pretty careful to note in the book that some institutions have managed to combat dysfunction. And in this respect, you mentioned the University of Western Cape is one which managed to fight its way back from the brink. What did Western Cape do right that the others have not managed to do? Right. So so I got some heavy criticism for the book from my more Marxist leftist friends um, in the sense that for them, the material explanation is everything. That is, the, and that the state is the full explanation for dysfunction. I don't buy that at all. So I see, um, so my angle in the book is to sort of say that on the one hand, there are these very powerful macroeconomic political forces that condition what happens in universities. But as a university leader myself in different at different levels, including vice chancellor, I know that I have agency, right? I know that my team has enormous agency to be able to do the right thing, despite the weight of history. And I've worked in historically white and historically black universities as a leader. So what the University of the Western Cape does, the University of Bender does, which is very rural, and the University of Limpopo is three things. Number one, they appoint into leadership people who are very strong, both as academic or scholars, but also as managers of the higher education enterprise. Secondly, they set in place these leaders' policies and procedures that actually make it very difficult for an institution to be corrupt. And then thirdly, and this is very important, they push back openly against corrupt agencies. And that, let me tell you, comes at a very high cost, just given, as you would have seen in the book, some references to people who were, who were murdered, who were shot, who were assassinated. In fact, we've got those cases right now at the University of Forty and others. So the cost of step, if you turn off the taps, they're going to come out there. So with that, can I ask you how optimistic you are about this fight against corruption? If, we have, if, I, if I invite you back on the show five years from now, are things going to be better or worse? You know, I, I like the language diplomats use, you know, when they come out of a meeting with two superpowers or two rivals, they would uh, use this particular phrase, which I found very interesting, if not shallow, uh, cautiously optimistic. So I, 
And I'm very cautiously optimistic, which, by the way, is one of the reasons I wrote the book. So I write the book out of a sense of intellectual curiosity, obviously. I want to understand why these chronically dysfunctional institutions never seem to get things right. So that's the intellectual curiosity. But there's also a, uh, a political commitment, and that is to make the taxpaying public aware of what is being committed in its name, uh, and so on. Now, there is this apocryphal story of a journalist who kept entering war zones to do his professional duty, and that was to report on the horrors of war. And somebody one day asked him, why do you keep going back uh, into those war zones given the dangers? And I'll never forget the response. It went something like this. If I don't do it, it is easier in the dark. In other words, if you don't shed a light on corruption, it is easier for these people to commit those crimes in the dark. And in that sense, I hope the book makes a contribution. Jonathan Jansen, it has been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much. It was an honor being with you. We've been speaking to Jonathan Jansen, author of Corrupted, a study in chronic dysfunction in South African universities. By the book, it is a fantastic read. It remains for me to thank the show's excellent producers, Tiffany McLennan and Sam Pufek, and of course you, the listener, for tuning in. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, please send us a line at podcast at higheredstrategy.com. Join us next week for episode 1.6, when our guest will be Elizabeth Buckner, professor of education at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, and we'll be discussing her recent book, Degrees of Dignity, Arab Higher Education in the Global Era. Bye for now. The World of Higher Education podcast is a Higher Education Strategy Associates production, produced by Tiffany McLennan and Samantha Pufek, hosted by Alex Usher, music by T. Bless and the Professionals. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Thank you.